Hi, my name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas, and it is uh, nine o'clock here in Cape Town. Uh, thank you for uh, joining me a little bit later than previously um, planned. Um, thank you to Rolling Blackouts, I like to call it, uh, which started today. Uh, I had to postpone, and thankfully, my guest on the other side was kind enough to to agree scott adams creator of dilbert thank you so much for joining me thanks for having me you know we have rolling blackouts here in california too so i i feel you are you currently experiencing them uh, i think it was last week we were under a warning that yeah I, I think my neighborhood didn't get a blackout but a lot of them did yeah <laughs> well you are now uh, experiencing the african flavor <laughs> <laughs> let's let's hope that everything stays powered <laughs> by the end by the end of this uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. All right, so far so good. We'll see if the the heavens are smiling on us. Um, well, listen, as as you can probably guess, I'm not at, at all a fan of yours. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you realize how old that book is? If you have the which one? Book, shave, shave the whales. Yes, that is. There. Yeah, that that's. Uh, I think that was the first real Dilbert reprint book. Well, I mean, let's talk about that for a second. You you started. Well, you didn't start, but you you first published Dilbert in what to, in 1989, April. Yes, 1989. Yeah. That is correct. And you've got a you've got a great story, Scott. You you worked. You were you were Dilbert. <laughs> um, well, all the Dilbert characters have a little bit of me and a little bit of my. You know, coworkers and bosses. So, so most of them are composites, but Dilbert is mostly me. And the the only parts that I didn't put in Dilbert are my my dark side, and I put that into his pet uh, Dogbert. So you have to add the two of them together to get me. But no pointy-haired boss in you. Well, I like to think the pointy-haired boss is you know my bosses. But everybody who is a boss also tells me that I must be talking about their boss. So everybody's pretty sure they're not the point of here boss. But, you know, their boss sure is. (laughs) I've got to ask you, though, uh, and it's something I've wondered for a long time, Scott. Um, You've been out of the corporate world for so long. How do you maintain accuracy? Well, you know, there's some things you don't forget. It's sort of like, right. uh, well, you, you were in jail for 10 years, but now it's been 20 years later. Do you remember what that was like? And you're thinking, yes, I remember what that was like. <laughs> it's hard. To, it's hard to get some of those memories uh, to go away. But, you know, for years after I left, uh, people would send me suggestions by email. Mm. And now, now I get suggestions uh, through a subscription service that I'm on. For people who want extra stuff from me called locals. Yes. And this this morning I just opened a chat and said, hey, I'm writing some comics. Do you have any ideas? And dozens of people logged on and said, oh, I'm at work and this is bugging me. And I just started writing down their experiences and made comics out of it. So it's always some kind of interactive process with the the audience reminding me things that I might not have been at top of mind. But I generally only write about things that I have some experience with. Yeah. So, so if I hear something, I go, "Oh, yeah, that happened to me." Then, then that's a good one. And I mean, 
when you you chatted to Dave Rubin, I think it was what two or three years ago. I can't remember exactly when. And you were telling the story about how you kind of saw uh, the end of the line um, where you were in your company uh, due to um, perhaps a, would you call it affirmative action uh, kind of <laughs> kind of maneuvering. Well, I think you're um, you may be conflating two separate stories, but the one you were you were thinking of is. I first worked at a uh, at a big bank, and then yes. then the lo- local phone company. My career ended at the bank because my boss called me in and said that I couldn't be promoted because I'm male and white. Right. And and the the word had come down from senior senior management that they were getting some pressure because they didn't have any diversity in upper management, and they needed needed to correct that. And the only way to correct it is to stop promoting white males. So they said directly, you know, a lot of people say, are you reading between the lines or or did they really fire you because you didn't do a good job? No, they told me that directly in, in as plain a language as I'm telling you. So I left. Uh, as luck would have it, my entire department I left was uh, eliminated right after I left. <laughs> they, they were bought bought by a bigger bank and just just all fired. So I escaped just in time and went to the local phone company and got on a management track, and I was sort of identified as an up-and-comer. You know, I was finishing my MBA at night. I looked like a real, you know, mm. a future senior executive. And one day, my boss called me in and gave me exactly the same talk. Said, you know, we just got in trouble for having no diversity. So until further notice, and I don't know when that would be, but not this year, not next year, we're going to, we can't promote you. So that's when I started working on Dilbert in my spare time because I, I decided I, I no longer needed to give 100% to my day job because <laughs> they, they were certainly not going to give 100% to me. And uh, Dilbert was one of a number of things I had tried over mm. the course of my life to try to break out of my cubicle world, but it's the one that worked. Yeah, I read your book, um, How to... Is it how to fail, fail at everything? everything? Is, it, is that the one where you, where you, where you basically yeah. tell about all your failures? Yeah, I had uh, over 30 business-related failures, if you count each project mm. you know, within, a, within a business line, et cetera. And, but I had three or four that were hugely successful. I became a, an author of non-Dilbert books, very successful, became a public speaker. So there were a number of things that worked fantastically. But uh, it's something like one in 10. So part of what I try to encourage people is to understand that if you're not going into it with the assumption that you're going to try 10 things, you're just you know flipping a coin and sometimes mm. it comes up and sometimes it doesn't. But if you try 10 legitimate you know, efforts to make something work, at the very least, you're going to meet people who will give you more opportunities. You're going to uncover skills that you didn't know you had. You're going to you're just going to be smarter and more experienced. So I recommend failing as the best way to get yeah. good at anything. And uh, that worked for me. Lots and lots and lots of failure. But that was the raw materials of success. Yeah, but I mean, you're not the only person to have said that. A lot of a lot of people have said that failure actually is a very good thing. Um, but I mean, the, one of the things that I've struggled, um, I'll be honest, one of the, one of the th- principles that I struggle with that I've read um, – you speak about a lot is uh is be somewhat somewhat good at a whole bunch of things 
as opposed to being yeah. very good at one thing. Right. Yeah, that I call that the talent stack idea. Mm. And I'm an ex I'm a good example of that because I'm a, a world famous cartoonist, but I don't have much art skill. If you look at my drawing, you'd say, well, that's pretty basic. And it is. If you look at my writing, I'm not even the funniest person in the room if I have a party at my house. I mean, back when you could get together with other human <laughs> beings and stuff. Uh, so I, I'm just pretty good at several things, but they fit together really well. Yeah, they, they, they fit together well. And one of the things was that I had business experience. Mm. So that, that gave me a, a body of you know, content to draw from. And then on top of that, because I also had you know, experience on how to manage things, and that was, you know, I had an MBA and a degree in economics, I could take the, the cartooning business and expand it in a way that maybe somebody with lesser business skills would not think to do. So I did a lot of licensing and you know, moving in, in a lot of different directions to see what would work. Yeah, I was saying to you earlier, um, I, I've been following your, your blogging since, what, about 2000 and I can't even remember the year, 2005 odd, uh, when you were still using that early platform called uh, TypePad, I think it was. And you wrote, a, you wrote a post that I've never forgotten uh, where you were, you were talking about um, Bill Watterson, I think it is, uh, who drew Calvin and Hobbes, and how much of a purist he is. And you were criticizing his, his desire not to uh, um, commercialize, sell at, yeah, sell yeah. out. Um, tell me a little bit more about your strategy there on that. Well, some people think they're artists first. And that that sort of suggests a certain kind of behavior. And one of those behaviors is you don't you're not doing it for the money. If you're like a pure artist, you're you're doing it for art, but you're also not doing it for the audience because the audience doesn't know what they need. You're the mm. artist. So mm. you're the one who knows what the art is. And if they enjoy it, that's great. But it's not necessary because it's about the art. Whereas I'm a business person first who did a number of things to try to make money, and cartooning was one of them. So when I looked at it, I said, hey, how do I get a better channel to my customers, find out what they like, and then I will change it in the way that they want me to change it so that it's a better product, the way mm -hmm. anybody would make any product if they were doing it right. And so I started running my email address between the panels of the Yeah, script. I remember that. And that, that was 1993 before Scott, anybody... Scott Adams at email. AOL, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. it was uh, scottadams at AOL.com. I still have that address, by the way. Uh, it was so early in the life of uh, email that I could have my, my own common name. You know, Scott Adams is yeah. a pretty common name. I think there are three of them in my town, actually, literally. And, um, you know, I was so early that I ran my email address, but not enough people had email to email me mm. because it was rare at those days. And, but I would actually get thousands of emails around the world anyway be, from people who said, you're the only person who has an email address that I know, so I thought I'd email you. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, but a lot of them were suggestions about how to change the strip. It, it started out being sort of a generic comic mm -hmm. in which I would do any kind of a joke about anything. Uh, and people said, well, we like it you know, a little bit when he's being generic and he's at home. But the few times he goes into the office, we really, really like it. And everybody said that. It was almost a universal truth. So I said, well, if I were an artist, I would tell them to suck it up because that's what it's going to be. Mm. 
but I'm not. I'm a business person. So I said, all right, if your customers want something, you kind of got to give it to them. That's, that's the way this works. So I modified the comic and made it a comic about the workplace. And that's when Dilbert took off. Scott, since 1989 to now, what's that? 30 years? Almost, what? 30 years? 31. Yeah. 30. Do you still enjoy drawing Dilbert? No, no. <laughs> no. I, I liken it to... Uh, <laughs> It, it would it would be like you know you wanted a, a dream job and you said you know the best job I could ever have would be just eating ice cream and, that, and that's it that's my job and getting paid for it and then somebody comes along and they say I'm going to give you a job just eating ice cream and I'll say well, what's the catch and they go what catch it's just eating ice cream and I'll go okay and then they'll say you have to eat a barrel a day and I'll go oh that's the catch. Because as you could as you might imagine, anybody who becomes a cartoonist, and yes. I'm sure you can speak, speak to this yourself, you probably were drawing for your own entertainment since you were three. Yes. Yeah. Right. And it was a compulsion. You loved it. It gave you joy. But man, once you've got a, once you've got, you've got to do it. You know, you don't get a chance, you know, of doing it today or not. You just have to do it today. Uh, it becomes a barrel of ice cream. It's it's a little too much of a good thing. So no, I would not say that it is is anything but work. But in the same breath, I don't want to be uh, a complete douchebag. Yeah, it's the best it's the best job in the world. But don't confuse it for entertainment. It's a real job. Mm. You know, it's just it's just a really really good one in a lot of different ways. I wouldn't trade it for anything. But it's not easy. And uh, it's not fun in the way that you know you would imagine that you know doing art for mm. your own your your own benefit would be fun. Uh, well, I must say, I I mean, I've been drawing for fifteen years, uh, and and um, and while I still enjoy it, um, there are times where I find where it's very difficult because you you know you're forced to come up with an idea all the time, and even if you go through a bad patch in life. You go, I don't know, someone dies or something happens and you just can't think of stuff and you still have to. And I remember reading, again, uh, as I said, I followed, I followed your, your stuff. I stalked, I stalked uh, Scott Adams. Um, you would, you would uh, write. By, by the way, by the way I, can, I can smell this question a mile away. Let, let, go ahead, finish. Well, well, good. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm, I was going to say that one of your tricks that I picked up on was to write material way in advance um and that's obviously worked yeah and then you can throw some away if you've got some extra mm. etc but there there's another part to that that i discovered um the hard way which was i was i started dilbert when i was doing my day job so i still had to go to work and i would get up at you know four usually four in the morning and try to do the comic before work and most days it came pretty easily. You know, if you're either wired for this kind of work or you're not, as you would know. And but some days, like you say, I would sit there and it would be 10 minutes before I had to go out the door and I'd have nothing, mm. just nothing. And I would say to myself, all right, here's my rule. Since I don't have an option of not doing it, you know, I have to produce one every day. I will do it in 10 minutes. So whatever the constraint is. I will produce it. It will be bad or it will be good, but it's going to be done. And I will, I will never break the rule that it will be done on time. And what I learned was I would look back to see the reaction to the comics. 
and I'd, I'd go to the one that I whipped off in 10 minutes and I had no pride of authorship whatsoever and people would love it. Yeah. And, and I and I would f- track that over time and I noticed there was no correlation between the ones that I thought were, you know, minor masterpieces in my own mind yeah. versus ones that other people thought were the best work I'd ever done. And I would look at it and I would say, really, that's the one you like? So it didn't, it was completely insensitive to whether I liked it. And it was also insensitive to how long it took. It, it just, it, it's mind boggling. I'll give you another example of that. Before I submitted any of my comics to my syndicator who gives you the big break to turn you into cartoonist, um, I had my friends sort 50 comics I'd made as samples into the ones they liked versus the ones that maybe I should you know, leave out of the sample pack. And there was no correlation among my friends. There, there was there was no no way to tell that any one of those 50 would be in somebody's this is your best work or in somebody else's this is your worst work. No correlation. So I sent all 50 and and that that worked out. So what, once you learn that you're not as good a, uh, a, a judge of your own work as you think you ought to be, it, it frees you. It frees yeah, you to nah, just be loose. I've found exactly the same thing. Sometimes I could draw something in 20 minutes uh, and and think to myself, oh, that wasn't very good, and it gets a massive response. And something that took two or three hours gets almost no response. The, the, let me ask you if you've had this experience. Um, you probably draw a rough version before you do the clean final version. I no, assume. I don't like, anymore. I used to. Oh, you don't? So you're using? are you drawing digitally? Yes, and that's thanks to you. Okay. Uh, well, okay. So I, I still uh, – so these days uh, I have a uh, art assistant who does the finished work on the dailies. I still do the Sunday cartoons completely, and I, I write them all. So when I do my first draft that's just sort of blocking out the characters for my assistant to finish up, I'll often look at the first draft and I'll say, I wish I could just print that because it has so so much life. Yeah. You know, the, the, the person who wrote it – can put a life into the picture that uh, that an assistant would have hard a hard time doing, because if 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 the the head you were in when you wrote the words matches the head you were in when you drew it, uh, it's it's the mistakes that give it that life. They give it that kind of graffiti, yes, you know, yes. Um, rebellious kind of a look that sometimes is just perfect for the words. So I, I often you know, lament that my art style improved to the point where the, the cartoon always looks sort of the same every time, mm. especially if, especially with the assistant. So I always think it, it lost a little bit of like X factor by getting a little too clean, if you will. Uh, but that's, that's why I don't do um, a rough and then a, a, an inking as it were afterwards, because I want to try and maintain that rawness. But Scott, so a lot of people in the comments are, are pushing me to to segue uh, into into some of your commentary that you have become <laughs> well well known for. Um, listen, I'm a cartoonist. I can chat all all day about about Dilbert, but there's so much. You have got such a colourful history that I've got to pick and choose here. <laughs> and let me let me jump to 2016, uh, which was. A very interesting year for me in many respects. Uh, um, notwithstanding the fact that I'm reading, I'm reading the Dolbert blog, and I suddenly see this prediction for Donald Trump 
to to win and not just win but win easily and obviously american politics pretty much drives the world's media so it was obviously big for us as well and i remember thinking this is nuts yes a guy at that <laughs> stage who who didn't seem like he had any presidential qualities and yes you making this this bold claim and i remember over the following months you you took a lot of flack and you you switched between hillary clinton and i'm sure you can explain that whole strategy to me in a second um but based on your prediction i then drew a cartoon here in south africa predicting trump's win and i was the first cartoonist and it was published in march of 2016 so it was a number of months before he won and i remember uh, my editor said you're taking a chance and i said well i'm i'm going to go with this cuz the person who made the claim i trust <laughs> well um you know i i found out after the fact that a lot of people had bet serious money on my prediction <laughs> and, and it was so contrary and it was like a, a crazy bet i i bet i bet money myself but not a ton uh, somebody bet 10,000 somebody bet 100,000 uh, uh, based on my my commentary now if i'd known that in advance i would have tried to talk them all out of it it was like no 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 right yeah you know, that's that's crazy you know about what you can afford i think they could all afford it though there were there were some rich people um i the the thing your some of your uh, audience doesn't know is that i'm also a trained hypnotist yes and, and it was my skill at uh persuasion and influence and a lifetime of reading about that body of work which I would incorporate into Dilbert. I use hypnosis techniques uh, not to hypnotize the reader, but to understand how the brain works, to organize things that, that are just more compatible with your brain, if you will. So I, I've always been deeply into that as a hobby slash professional requirement. And when, when Trump came on the scene, I said to myself, oh, this isn't normal. He, what he's bringing is the persuader's tool set on top of an entertainer's tool set, on top of a business person's tool set. So we talked earlier about the, the, the talent stack idea. And what I could see is if you layered those talents together, it was a superpower. But people would look, they would make the mistake of seeing them individually. And they'd say, yeah, yeah, he's got some business experience, but what about this? That's Or they'd say, oh yeah, I could see how he's a, persuasive salesman, but he's sort of just a con man. How important is that? And they would be correct that if you took any one of his, you know, talents and you said, is he the best in the world at this? Probably not. Although you could argue maybe persuasively he might be one of the best in the world. Uh, but when you put them together, it was just a superpower. And I, I could see that like, like a gigantic light that was just blinding me, you know, almost mm. as soon as he came on the scene. I, I could see him in the Oval Office, but it wasn't until the first debate that I committed to it uh, completely in public. And and for those who might have seen it, do, do you watch the U.S. debates where uh, you are? Well, they they appear on TV, um, CNN or whatnot. But I mean, I certainly did watch Trump's debates because uh, they <laughs> yeah. were just they were brilliant. So I'll just point out this one moment that really solidified it. Uh, he was asked about his problematic statements about women that sounded sort of offensive in the past. I remember there that. were a number of them, and the and the questioner, you know, lists them. 
And but he had also had a long running feud with somebody named Rosie O'Donnell. Yes. You, you know, if you know her uh, yes. famous actress. <laughs> but the, now, now the thing you need to know is that in America, if you're a conservative, the people who would support Trump, he, uh, Rosie O'Donnell is a very unpopular character to them. So she's popular on the left, but not the right. And so Trump listens to this, the most damning question anybody's ever gotten should have been the end of his campaign. And he looks right at her after she says, what do you say about all these offensive comments? And he looks and he goes, only Rosie O'Donnell. And the whole place just erupted. <laughs> and, and, and there was so much in that moment. I actually stood up and walked toward the television. Like physically, I stood up and walked toward the television. I said, what's that? That is not normal. No. Because here's what he did. Not only did he, he make the biggest moment, you know, he, he sucked all the energy out of the room. You didn't even remember who the other people were on stage after he said that because he was just so wrong and interesting. And here's what made it special. It wasn't true, but it didn't matter <laughs> because, because the answer was so interesting, you couldn't think of the question anymore. And I said, that that's like that's not even military grade that's like nuclear grade mm. if you can make if you can make a question disappear on a stage while the whole country is looking it was like a magic trick it was this this question that's going to end your career what question it was yeah, just exactly. gone he, he 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 made it disappear in front of the whole country and i said okay if he can reproduce that He's, you know, he's going to be the president. And I thought he could. That's that's the moment that I I tripled down and said, all right, I'm all in. He's he's going all the way. The correct me if I'm wrong. It was was it Megan Kelly, I think. That yes. Off, yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, she was <laughs> she was working for Fox and then she resigned or something, if I remember. Yeah. Uh, and then she had another job and that mm. didn't work out. Uh, there are a lot of people who have gone after Trump who for reasons of their own. <laughs> Their, their lives didn't work out as well as his did. <laughs> it's, it's very consistent when people go after him that they have bad luck after that. So keep well, that in mind. <laughs> listen, since I, don't have a, since I don't have a dog in this fight, will it, will it matter if, 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 if I wear? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not sure if you fully understand how dangerous that would be to wear in America. Um, I, but, listen, I, I see what's happening in Portland. Yeah, it's not just Portland, but if if you walked out of the house and just went to any any store wearing that hat, you probably get assaulted. Um, no matter where you were, it wouldn't matter if you were in a civilized place or an uncivilized. Your odds of being assaulted would be I don't seventy five percent probably. And that's interesting, Scott. Has there ever been a time? I mean, you you live in the, in the U.S. As in your memory, has there ever been a time where? Voting for a president has resulted or has resulted in so much ag aggression and violence. No, and some of it's because of who it is. So he's a provocative person, and he keeps the he keeps the energy high, both pro and con. But the other thing is that the business model of social media and the news business has changed in the last, let's say, five years. So that uh, making you mad at each other is primarily how they make money. They need to make you angry and worked up. So if you add that, you know, you add this character who's just a, a natural match to a situation that's a whole bunch of gasoline, we've never had that combination at the same time. So that's why it looks a little extra dangerous.
Well, listen, uh, I live in, um, in Africa, so for what it's worth, uh, it would be an upgrade to have your level of violence. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hear you got, a, got us beat on that, although we're trying to catch up. Things are, <laughs> we're, we're, we're really trending in the right direction uh, to catch up. You, you've never been to South Africa, right? I have not, no. Okay. Have you been onto the African continent at least? Uh, I have not. I'm not a not a big world traveler. Uh, the thing about being a cartoonist with a daily comic is it's really hard to get time off because I just have to work twice as hard the week before. Mm. And I'm thinking, I kind of broke even, but at least I saw someplace nice. Um, tell me a little bit about your your. It it appears that you've had a a a shift publicly in in how you've commented on sort of Republican Democrat um, views and, and, and commentary. Uh, you seem to be a lot more critical of the left, but not just you, Scott. I notice a lot of people in the US who are traditionally perhaps left-leaning have become critical of the left. I see Sam Harris is, is very angry. People like Steven <laughs> Pinker as well. Uh, it, it, there's a whole wide range peter bogosian james lindsay the list just goes on um how how has this affected you and, and wh why are you part of that well uh politically i call myself left of uh, bernie sanders so in terms of s social stuff um you know i'd love to have you know free education and you know, health care for everybody that works out but uh unlike bernie sanders i'm good at math so I don't know how to get there. You know, he imagines he can, but I imagine I don't know how. And you're also you know, not a hypocrite. Heard, yeah, I'm not a hypocrite. <laughs> so I do think that uh, the ideal situation would be Republican uh, systems to achieve the left's uh, goals. Because the left has far more moral goals in terms of taking care of everybody, make sure everybody has a, has a good chance. Uh, but the right is way better at executing. Mm. And and the big difference is that the right takes into consideration human nature. So when the right says we need free markets, they know that humans are greedy bastards. But free markets are the thing that unleashes any goodness that they can produce mm. cumulatively. You can have lots of bad individuals and still have a, a good outcome on the whole. Same with capitalism. Same mm. with following the Constitution, you know, following the rules. So if you want something done – Republicans are a good bet. If you want it done in the exact moral direction that you want, well, the, I think the left has a little bit of a moral advantage in terms of, you know, where they'd like it to go. So anyway, so I don't have a uh, a preference for the left or the right because I feel like you'd have to take their best parts to have anything that was worth a damn, and that's not even an option. So when I first started talking about the politics, I came in through the persuasion window, yes. and I tried tried to remain objective and just say, I'm just talking about their skill set. You can figure out the policy stuff yourself. But the deeper I got into it, the more I was branded as a Trump supporter yes. to the point where it became sort of disingenuous to deny it because I did form a preference over time. And then uh, in 2018, the president actually invited me to the Oval Office just to chat, <laughs> which what? is which is it's it's the freakiest thing that could ever happen to a human being. Yeah, I, I just got an invitation to come and talk to him about no specific topic. I somehow now, missed that. Now this is not as unusual as it sounds, because oh. uh, especially in the summers, 
when there's not much going on, but the president's still in town because he has to be, uh, it's not unusual for him to call in people he would consider supporters to just, you know, solidify the support and stuff. So you get another set of ears and eyes. So, you know, I, I got to go in and chat with him. And I have to say that if, if you're being honest about your objectivity, you can't really sit and have a conversation with the president of the United States who, by the way, has amazing social skills. Really? You know, like, you know, I mean, just interpersonal. It, you know, the, the biggest complaint you would make about, or, or anybody, I guess, about Trump would be, he only cares about himself, he's a narcissist, blah, blah, blah. So you imagine if you had a conversation with him, there would sort of be him talking about himself until you're done. Mm. He, he's an amazing listener. He asked, he asked, like, insightful questions about me and my business, you know, and I, I can't get into any details of what we talked about. It mm. wasn't wasn't state secrets or anything. But once you leave that situation, it's hard to be objective after that because now you know him. Yeah. And, and, and you had a good interaction. And he was – I swear, I tried to ask him a couple of questions, but he was sort of talking over me to ask me questions. And it's it's not what you'd expect, right? I mean, it was a, he had a genuine interest in figuring out what my what my situation was. Yeah, so, but you can also sort of understand that to some degree because the pointy head boss, in a way, in a way, would have been a a, a satire on him, surely, back in the day. <laughs> uh, well, he he probably is such a unique character. He doesn't fit quite into that middle management mode. <laughs> He's more the C. CEO, uh, you know, billionaire mode. Uh, but uh, yeah, he was he was interested in, you know, the, the business side of Dilbert. And mm. he asked about that. And uh, so, yeah, I'm not I'm not objective. And so I decided to just embrace it and say, all right, I'm a, a Trump supporter. And then as as I saw the uh, the Democratic side develop and what it is they had to mm. offer, I thought, you know, even if I <clears throat> were not a Trump supporter, I don't think I like the package they're putting together of, of what they have to offer. It just didn't look coherent to me. I'm, I mentioned uh, pointy head boss and my wife and I were talking just before uh, the show. Um, and I'll, I need to ask you, there was a, an animation years ago, a full, a full length feature film. I, Scott, I, for the life of me, cannot remember what it was, but there was a character that, looked just like the pointy head boss but as far as i know he he there was no relation to dilbert it, <laughs> do you know what i'm talking about yeah it's the uh something me the evil me or was it despicable me despicable me yes and there was a, a an evil character that looked just like the pointy head boss yeah when the movie came out people said to me uh do you know that your character is in that movie and i said no it's not and then they, they would send me the link and I'd say, huh, well, it does look just like him. But, you know, uh, d to be fair, the, the cartooning world and probably all art world, it's probably true of music and any kind of art. It, you do a lot of borrowing and you don't always know where you borrowed it yeah. from. Uh, so I would love to tell you that I've never accidentally <laughs> sort of stepped on somebody else's creation. Right. Completely unintentionally. And then you look at it, you go, oh. Well, that that looks like that was inspired a little bit too inspired, if you know what I mean. So sometimes you have to pull one back if you realize you've done that. Uh, I, I've never talked to anybody about it, but 
to have a boss character who is literally a pointy-haired boss and otherwise looks just like my character, a lot of people noticed. Nah, come on. But Everyone, it was inspired. They they got away with it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean... And Maybe. Scott, listen, I, I'm I'm segueing again because there are a few things I've been wanting to to ask you for for years, literally years. A number of years ago, you wrote on your blog something again that that freaked me out, and it's something that I've always been thinking about, and it was the concept of free will. And this is an entire discussion. I know, I know, uh, we, but to keep it obviously summarized, you. You made the point that free will is in, is an illusion, and I've never forgotten that. And then when I read, um, what did I read? Now was it Stephen Pinker? Was it Matt Ridley? Sam Harris? Maybe Sam, Sam I for, Harris. I forget now. That. But basically, somebody was talking about the fact that uh, that there's no blank slate. Uh, Stephen Pinker, I think it was actually. There's no blank slate, and it tied in to that concept where did you come up with that idea like how did you get to it and why do you say that it's an illusion because I, I tend to agree with it but i can't say why well i wouldn't uh it's not like i invented the concept it's you no, know, sure. been around forever so i'm sure i picked it up somewhere but here's my way of explaining it the rules of physics don't stop at the outside of your skull whatever's happening in the world outside of your actual skull is always according to the rules of physics. Your lawnmower doesn't have the option of starting if all the conditions are right and you've pulled the cord or pushed mm. the button or whatever. Uh, it just does what it mechanically does. Your brain is basically, uh, I call it a, a moist computer, meaning that it's it's still uh, matter, it's still you know atoms and particles and whatever. And even if at a quantum level there's some kind of uncertainty that we can't deal with, when, as soon as you sum it up into a larger thing like a brain, it seems to always conform to the rules of physics, just like everything else. So in theory, the exact condition of your brain at any moment, combined with the inputs that are happening at the moment, are the only things that matter. And your free will is just an illusion that you have after the fact. You say, oh, there's a reason I did that. And by the way, a hypnotist learned this. Uh, this was... Uh, 30 or 40 years ago, I learned that uh, people make decisions before the part of their brain that makes decisions is activated. Yes. <laughs> you can actually you can test that in a lab, and there were more recent confirmations of that. So we do know that people rationalize. They explain why they did something after the fact, but the decision is just a mechanical process, actually. Yeah, Matt Ridley actually spoke about some of those experiments um, in his book, The Evolution of Everything. Uh, and you're, yeah, so you're quite right. Okay, so it's it's more of a biological thing than some great philosophical uh, time time bending concept. <laughs> yeah, I mean, physics either affects everything or it doesn't, and we've never found anything it didn't. Scott, do you think that Trump is going to get a second term? Well, I like to put it in these terms. If nothing changed from where the current trends are, yeah, easily. Now, it does help that he's running against the weakest candidate that has ever run for yes. president in the United States of any party, you know, third parties included. We've never had a candidate who you wondered if he could even survive. <laughs> <laughs> 
We've we've never had a candidate who literally had to hide in the basement so nobody asked them a question. You know, a lot of a, a lot of this sort of snuck up on us. You know, my mother used to have the saying that you could get used to anything uh, if you do it long enough, including hanging. You know, eventually you get used to hanging. <laughs> uh, so, what happened was, you know, Joe Biden started down as a imperfect but seemingly alive and capable person. And we were like, okay, okay, we can put up with, you know, he's, he's a little bit old. Or, uh, it's not the biggest deal. And then, then there'd be a gaffe, and then you'd say, oh, it's just a gaffe. Doesn't change much from how I felt about him yesterday. It's just, what, 1% difference? Not going to change my opinion for 1%. Next day, a little bit more. Yes. <laughs> so, so each of these 1% sort of added up until people are in this uh, complete absurdity. The there's nobody that you can talk to personally who will tell you that they think Biden is capable, even if they support him. They, they've completely abandoned the he's a good candidate. And now they just say, well, the other one's terrible. You know, we, we just can't have another another year of this Trump character. So it doesn't even matter who he's running against. It only matters that it's not Trump. And I think they mean that. I, I think they have abandoned any any even pretense that they have a good idea or a good reason. They just hate Trump. I wonder I wonder if Joe Biden even knows that he's running against Donald Trump. Maybe he thinks he's running against Ronald Reagan still. <laughs> yeah. Well, without the, the joke part, I do wonder what he knows. Because, <laughs> because here's the thing. Everybody else knows that with no doubt whatsoever, there, there are very few things you can say with this much certainty if you weren't in the room. I wasn't in the room or any of the rooms, but I'm still going to say it with complete certainty. There are conversations going around in his inner circle about how to replace him, you know, when and how. Now, does he know that? I don't know if he knows that Mm. because he, he might be the only one who thinks he should debate and everyone else is thinking how to tell him he's not. And I and I've seen the comments. People are, are are joking and they're saying Sleepy Joe. And that again is something that you spoke about with um <clears throat> with Trump's persuasion skills. Is that he, he created he created nicknames for people and he used <laughs> he used beautiful words to describe things when you would talk about the wall. I remember you you spoke about that. He wouldn't say just the wall. He would talk about this beautiful majestic wall. Uh, and and yes. he. Yeah, so different techniques in those. When he talked about the wall, he would make visual, at least in your brain, uh, what that would look like. That's uh, A-plus persuasion is if you can turn anything into a visual. Concepts don't sell as well as pictures. So there's that. But then with his – his nicknames were not simply clever insults. And when other people try to use his technique, they, they think it's just a clever insult and they make one up and just lays there. Whereas his become part of the conversation, they, they, they leave the page, if you will. And it's because of his technique. So I, I saw it first when he, uh, he called uh, Jeb Bush, who everybody at the time thought was clearly going to be the next president. And he labeled him a low-energy Jeb. Mm. And the, the moment he reframed him as that, you could see it. Because Jeb had been this cool, calm executive. And you say to yourself, that's exactly who you want for president guy who doesn't get too excited. He's, he's just got that executive personality. Nothing ruffles him. But then you look at Trump and he's all high energy. And you say, well, now now that you mentioned it, Jeb does look low energy. 
And every time you saw him after that, the confirmation bias kicked in. Yeah. And that's that's what makes it special. So somehow Trump managed to pick the maybe the only weakness he had wrapped it into a nickname, put it into the world. And it actually ended the Bush dynasty with one with one nickname. He ended the Bush dynasty. And I said that the day that I heard it, I said, this this will be the last you'll hear of Bush. It was literally the, the, the last day that his poll numbers were at were at that point, And every day after that was lower. And it was the nickname. The nickname actually took him out. Do you think that he still, <clears throat> excuse me, do you think that he still has that same energy now? Uh, I think that everybody gives up a little bit to age, but what he gives up to age, he's made up for in um, experience. So it's hard to replace four years of being a president. You know, there, there's nothing that gets you ready for that. You know, I don't <laughs> think vice president quite gets you there. Sure. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, it's the trade off that we all make. If you ask me if I'm as sharp as I was when I was 25, I'd say, nope, not even close. But who would you rather have on your payroll, me at this age <laughs> or me at 25? No contest, right? Me, me at my age has compiled a whole bunch of skills that work well together. So even if my you know native processor is off by 20%, my output is 500% what I could do when I was 25. You've just reminded me of something. Um, you struggled to speak publicly for quite a long time, if I'm correct. I, I had a uh, speaking problem that came on suddenly when I was 49, I think. And uh, it took for me the ability to speak um, in a way that people could understand it. I could make noise, but they couldn't understand it for about three and a half years. It was called a spasmodic dysphonia just happens to some people nobody knows why and it was rare enough that it took me years to figure out even what it was i had to figure that out on my own doctors were baffled but thank thanks to mm. google <laughs> I, I i used a google alert that uh, or actually i did a google search and then i used a google alert to find out more about it uh and then i found the only doctor in the world who had an experimental surgery and I found out more about it, signed up. I wasn't the first person. He had done other surgeries. And for me, it worked. It doesn't work for 100% of the people. No, sure. For me. So, and by the way, this was considered an incurable problem when I got it. And I'm very, uh, let's say I'm stubborn. So when you, when you tell me I have an incurable problem, the very first thing I think is, oh, you're telling me I'll be the first person to cure it. Mm. And, and, I, and I approached it that way. It's funny you say that because um, you know Nassim Taleb. He um, he's often said that you need to um, not always trust the experts, which is kind of what you're saying in a different way. I mean, people go, "Well, that's not possible." You go, "Well, really?" <laughs> well, the the experts didn't know of how to fix it, but mm. that did not preclude that uh, that could not be learned sometime soon. So uh, I, I, tr I looked into every possible thing. I mean, I just scoured the earth for every, everything, tried lots of different things that were you know, easy to try. Um, and I would have just kept trying things. So I, I think well, I would have gotten there eventually. Well, I mean, related to that, and, and, and again, uh, you know, your non-Dolbert stuff uh, has, has resonated very well with me over the years, much of it actually. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I'm chatting to you, but genuinely, like for example, 
one of the things that I think is brilliant is the idea of of systems rather than goals. Um, it it makes the world of difference if you can wrap your head around the importance of that. How would you how would you describe it to my audience now who don't who don't know what that means? So first of all, that came from my book, How to Fail at Almost Everything and yeah. Still Win Big, which is um, probably the thing I'll be remembered for more than Dilbert. People don't know that now. But based on the feedback I've been getting for several years, it's it's just changing people's lives left and right. And I know that sounds like an overclaim, but just, you know, just go look at the Amazon reviews and you can see it. Um, so the talent stack ideas in there as well as systems versus goals. Now, the way I define a system is not just practicing. You know, people would say, oh, yeah, you know, you have to practice or work hard to be your goal. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a system is something that you do every day without a specific outcome in mind. So, for example, if you were in uh, college, going to college and uh, studying your major doesn't mean you're going to have that job that your major indicates. So you're, you're, you're creating a general skill that you absolutely can say with certainty will improve your yeah. life options, but you don't know which option you're going to take. But, and, there, and there are a number of ways to build systems for your diet, for your uh, exercise, etc. I'll, I'll give you just a quick example. If you wanted to build a system for exercise, um, I say start with this knowledge and build from there which is the only thing you have to get right is to do it. If you get that right, that you can actually cause yourself to do your exercise, over time you'll figure out the best way to do it. You'll, you know, you'll pick up tips from other people. You'll get more interested, et cetera. So don't worry about technique. Worry about essentially brainwashing yourself, rewiring your brain so that you have a system that gets you to exercise every day. For example, I would give myself a reward for exercising. I would literally have a nice smoothie and some downtime, which would be rare for me. And it would be a delightful reward that I would give myself immediately after exercising. And we're not that different from animals. If you just give yourself a consistent reward, and food is really good. There's a reason that you train a dog with a, a food treat. We're, we're food creatures. And you can train yourself just like the dog so that when noon comes, I used to work out around lunchtime, when noon would come, I couldn't not work out. I, I was so conditioned that this is when I work out, I would be really uncomfortable if there was some reason I couldn't. So what I did first, my system, if you will, is I created all the conditions that trained me to do it. And then once I'm doing it every day, that I can work for the rest of my life to figure out how to optimize. It's like, oh, mm. yeah, I, I found out that doing lighter weights and more reps would be better for my body type. You know, So it's the continuous experimenting that's part of the system as opposed to, okay, I'm going to be rowing and I'll row every day. That's more just practice. That's not so much a system. Is it, is it sort of another way of looking at habits? Um, it is part of a system is developing habits, but it's not all of it. So habits would be a subset of systems. Okay. Um, to give you another example, a good system for diet rather than forcing yourself to eat less and it hurts is to have a system of learning about food continuously your whole life. So that's that's part of my system. So what that means is I'm always experimenting with how to uh, make something that I know is good for me delicious. Because if, uh, if 
if I can make the food that's good for me, comparable to, say, French fries that I really, really want to eat, but they're mm. not so good for me. If I can close the gap, let's say I'd rather eat a avocado, and I've learned that if I just cut it in half and score it and put some soy sauce and pepper on it and eat it right out of its little shell, it's really delicious. It is. It's almost like a, it's like an incredible snack. So uh, like one category at a time, perpetually my whole life, I'm in continuous experimenting. Oh, what if I do this? What if I do that? Wh which of these two foods is mm. a higher glycemic index than the other? I'll give you an example. Uh, would your audience know that peanuts, although they're a fatty kind of a food, are highly correlated with actually losing weight? Because it turns out it's a, a satisfying kind of a fat. So if you have a handful of peanuts, it kills your appetite enough that you don't eat more other stuff. It's fairly well demonstrated scientifically. Now, the fact that I know that gives me an advantage over somebody who doesn't. Right. Because if you're, you're hungry and I'm hungry, you eat some carbs, I eat some peanuts, I lost weight, you gained weight. And it was knowledge that did it. It wasn't willpower. No willpower. Right. So I look, I look for a system that makes willpower completely irrelevant to anything. You're just doing what you're doing. And the smarter you get, the easier it is to make the choices that keep you at your ideal weight. Yeah, I like what you're saying. Because um, I'm, I'm constantly in conflict with carbs. <laughs> you know, part, part of the other thing I learned is that uh, you don't want to fight a war on two fronts. No. So let's say you want to, you want to lose some weight. Uh, most people will just say, all right, I will just eat less or eat things I don't really care about. That's the hardest thing. I mm. say, if you're trying to lose weight, the first thing you should do is eat as much as you want, anytime you want, but but it only has to be in the category of really good food. So in other words, you can have all the broccoli you want. There's no limit. The, 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 the practical outcome is that you will limit your own broccoli intake because <laughs> you it's don't have to eat too great. much broccoli. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, I love broccoli, but I'm still not going to overeat it, right? Um, so, so if the first thing you do is make sure you're not hungry, it's much easier to say, all right, I can, I can give up on the candy bar that I really want because yes. I'm, I'm not hungry. So I say take care of your hunger first and get rid of your cravings. If, yes. if, if, you, if you take something like I was hooked on Diet Coke for – 25 years. I, yeah, I do 12 Diet Cokes a, a day for 25 years, probably. And it took me two months of not having a Diet Coke before the, <laughs> before the thought of it turned to turpentine. In other words, today, if I think of a Diet Coke, and I've, I've tested it, just like take a sip of my favorite you know, beverage for 25 mm. years, it's a little gross. And it's only because I'm, my body doesn't recognize this anymore, and it's it's unfamiliar. Uh, and the same with uh, Snickers candy bars that I would eat, you know, two or three of those yeah. big ones a day when I get when I get, you know, off the wagon. But it takes two months before it doesn't look even appealing anymore. I, so I, I can understand it, Joe. Yeah, there's something about a carb addiction that that if you just eat as much as you can and never get hungry, you can pick off one addiction at a time. And you can even say, I won't even give up my other carbs. I'll just give up this candy bar. And that's part of I the system. Eat, yeah, that's part of the system, right? And, and also I look at a diet as a lifetime thing. Yes. Diet is not what you're going to leave, you know, not what you're going to lose in two months. That's a ridiculous way to look at diet. Scott, you've got way too much wisdom. 
Um, I'm trying try to give it all away and die, die with none. <laughs> uh, we we're, we're coming in for a landing, um, so I'll I'll uh, I'll ask you one or two light-hearted questions. Um, one of the things that you do on a regular basis is that you do the simultaneous sip. So so those who don't know what it is, um, Scott Scott has this absolutely ginormous coffee mug. <laughs> <laughs> it looks it looks bigger on camera because I do this. Oh right, there we go. It's it's gigantic. <laughs> and um and he he has a sip simultaneously with uh, with all his audience um, when he does his periscope streams. Um, I would do the simultaneous sip with you, but it's nighttime here and I don't drink coffee at night. <laughs> well, any any beverage works. Yeah, there, there's a functional reason that I do that. Uh, one is that it's live streamed, so mm. I'm waiting for people to get in. So before I start the hard content, I've got a sort of a ceremony that's always the same mm. so that people can they can fast forward it if they want to, if they watch it in replay. But the other part is um, this is a hypnosis trick. If you can make somebody do something, anything, they're more likely to do more things. That's a, a salesman's trick. But if you can get them to do something simultaneously – which the hypnotist would call pacing, then you you build a connection. Right. And, uh, and yeah. for for every person who says, I'm not going to do that simultaneous sip, you're trying to manipulate me into enjoying myself, there are you know two people who say, I kind of liked it. I, I like feeling connected with all the people who are doing it at the same time. So everybody's a little bit different. But it does have a, a real binding effect for the, uh, for the audience. I've got to ask you, is hypnosis real? <laughs> uh, I could talk all day on this, but in the interest of time, I'll give you the short version. The answer is yes, but here's the the switcheroo on that. The things you think hypnosis could do, it can't. The things you didn't know it could do, it does really, really well. <laughs> so that that uh, that's the reason that the public is a little confused by it. And they often see stage hypnotists, mm. which is a combination of a magic trick plus hypnosis. The, the trick with the stage hypnosis is – that's real hypnosis, by the way. But when you start with a big crowd, it's really easy to find somebody who is both easy to hypnotize and also doesn't mind. And it's the doesn't mind part that's the trick because you might say, would you go up in front of this crowd and – act like you're clucking like a chicken and you might say mm. no that's embarrassing but if you have a big enough crowd there's somebody in that crowd yes. who doesn't mind right they I'm, just don't mind so you watch it and you're like wow oh, they must be deeply hypnotized because look at them doing something i would never do but the trick is they would it doesn't bother them a bit uh, okay as you say it's the switcheroo it's slot of hand yeah. Um, I've got a question. I've got a question from David. Um, he wants to know, Scott. Uh, his his question is very simple. Where is Dale? <laughs> so Dale is my alter ego. I sometimes uh, I pretend that I'm a different character just by holding a, a little white rag up to my uh, chin, and, you know, <laughs> pretending it's a bad goatee. Uh, so people people love Dale because he's a, a dumb. <laughs> A dumb Democrat in my telling of it. And, uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's my my mocking character. I, I pull him out every now and then. Oh, uh, okay, all right. Well, I think I think someone was asking for you to pull out Dale in the comments. I I, I don't think I have anything here. Well, the, all I can do is 
this this uh, protein bar wrapper. <laughs> and see, the, the trick with Dale, for, for those who are, who are watching it, is it's all about the facial expression. Because I'm not changing the rest of the face. I'm just adding the, the little bad goatee. <laughs> so, so, so it's all in the face. And watch the transition. That's, that's it. That's, that's Dale. <laughs> Do you have a Dale character in Dilbert? No, but I, I've considered it. I've considered it. I, I use a lot of the uh, characters that I meet online in the strip. They just don't know it. Oh, just quickly, before we go, uh, Scott, suddenly I remember there was a strip you did. I can't remember when it was anymore, but there was an issue with a gun. And you change it to a sausage or something. I can't remember. What was that whole thing again? A donut. Donut. Yeah, I did, I, I did a comic where the police were in a shootout. <laughs> and you, you saw the police shooting. You didn't see what they were shooting at. But they had, you know, guns because they were police. But there was a rule. I don't know if it's the same. This was years ago. But the newspaper had a rule, or the at least the syndication company that sold the comic to the newspaper, had a rule of not portraying guns in the comics now in the old days you could do it but people were sensitive about it so they sent this back to me and i'm like and i thought i don't want to start from scratch because this entire cartoon <laughs> depends entirely upon this policeman having a gun and yes. shooting it so they said you can't show it can't show a gun i'm like can't show a gun what will i do so i literally replaced the gun with a donut that so so and, and the funny part was I didn't explain it. There, there was no, there was no explanation. It was just a cop who had a donut, and the donut happened to shoot bullets. And I just, I just, I just resubmitted it with a do, with a donut instead of a gun, and it sailed right through. Because they're like, well, we we only had one re requirement. You met the requirement. That's no that's, that's something that Gary Lawson would have done. <laughs> I, I I was younger and more subversive in those days. Um, Scott, it's been an absolute pleasure um, chatting with you. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, <laughs> it's it's silly for me to go, oh, well, do you have a website that everybody can check out? Because everybody knows Dilbert.com. It's under the video. Um, <laughs> but... Um, <clears throat> And all your books on Amazon and, you know, all, 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 I mean, you've got this whole wide range of, of merchandise, <laughs> um, even dolls and things. Um, I think, I think that, uh, you've done a great thing with Dilbert. It's certainly been, um, a big part of my life. Um, I, I remember reading Dilbert when I was at school and, um, I think I still did a few examination questions about uh the strip i've always found that funny because i've now seen my own work in um in the school curriculum and uh, hmm. uh, i'll tell you a quick story if you don't mind i remember someone sent sent me a photograph of one of my cartoons with a series of questions underneath and in there would be like five marks and three marks and i looked at this and i thought i would fail <laughs> yeah uh, Dilbert's used in uh, quite a few uh, textbooks at this point, which yes. always makes me laugh because a lot of the textbooks it's in, to to your point, are are uh, subjects I don't know. Yes. I'm thinking, oh, I guess I'm teaching law now. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I understood it, but I guess I'm teaching it now. Yeah, I, so I sometimes think that people look too deeply into into it. I mean, you, you're going to get that one person somewhere in the world is going to look at that cop shooting a donut and he's going to read into it. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but Scott, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. It's been a great pleasure. I hope you have a, a great day further. My day is done. Um, and uh, hopefully I'll, I'll see you on my, on my stream in the future. All right. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Always good to talk to a cartoonist, especially. Ah, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, uh, Scott. Please don't go anywhere. Um, thanks, everybody, for watching. Thank you for uh, all your questions and comments. My name is Jim. This was Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas.